0: good morning to daniel mumby good morning richard how are you i'm fine well a bit tired i think we are both a little been, worse for wear this weekend <laughs> as anybody who's listening to the first hour of the show will testify <laughs> a little <laughs> bit uh, not quite with it this morning anyway uh, yes nice out out at uh, annick castle last night for the um, burns night it was great fun mm-hmm. and uh, i've never been to an event in the great hall there before it was excellent right anyway hakuna matata from the lion king um starting Showing, I i'm not completely uh, falling asleep this morning because there was a reason for playing that because it's at the annick playhouse on monday afternoon four thirty, um and it should be good it shouldn't it
1: yeah i mean i take it this is because it was recently re-released in 3d but of course the annick playhouse will be showing yes. it in 2d which is the way to see the line arguably like. better well yes. yes and i think genuinely disney's finest hour i think it is a, a fantastic piece of work
0: And staying with the Annick Playhouse, one other film, and I think it's next Friday, if my fingers are counting up correctly,
1: the 3rd of February, The Ides of March. Which, no, I think is more unremarkable than people have let on, but it's a very good, solid political thriller. No, good performances from George Clooney and Ryan Gosling will come to George Clooney in the uh, the last 20 minutes of the programme because his new film, The Descendants, is just coming out. So, yeah, don't go in with too high expectations because I don't know whether it says anything new, but, no, good fun quite a bit to tell you about
0: at berwick malting so we'll rattle through these first of all this afternoon at two thirty, and and, and 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 you know just this afternoon at two thirty, it's hugo martin
1: Mart- scorsese's film yeah martin scorsese back on form it, um, it's just got a couple of oscar nominations i don't know whether it's got a chance of winning best picture no i don't think it matters whether you see it in 3d or 2d uh but it's a fantastic film and you know about which looks at the history of cinema but also has something for young children
0: right tonight at seven thirty we'll deal with this in the top ten, it's Sherlock Holmes Mm 2. Tomorrow afternoon at 12 o'clock, we'll also be talking about this one later, is Puss in Boots. Uh, Tomorrow at 3 o'clock is Happy
1: Feet 2. Which, you know... I still remain a bit frustrated with how George Miller's career has gone, because, of course, he this is the guy who started out doing the Mad Max series, and then yeah. after doing Babe and uh, producing Babe and then directing Babe Pig in the City, he's sort of fallen into the rut of just making innocuous children's animations. Not that there's anything wrong with children's animations, but just it's an odd path to take. It's all over the place. It looks gorgeous, so younger children will appreciate it, but don't rush out to see it.
0: Right. Half Price Monday is the Ides of March, 8 o'clock. mm mm-hmm. Uh, and then Tuesday at 8 o'clock, we need to talk. Are you want to say anything else? Like no? Well, right. I'd say, you've no. already said something yep. about
1: the eyes of Mark. We need to talk about Kevin, it's the yes. best film of the year. And if you haven't seen it, you really, 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 really need to see it. It is an astonishing piece of cinema.
0: Okay, so box office numbers, and it gets And the Mortings in Berwick
1: 01289 All I would say about we need to talk about Kevin is don't go with a date because it's not the sort of. Film to sort of bond over romantically. I see.
0: Right. Okay. Top ten then. Yeah. Uh, number ten still there
1: is Puss in Boots. It has taken a lot of money, and actually, I, I, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's just been nominated for an Oscar for best animated film, which is a bit of a surprise. Because no, not because it's a you no know, bad film. by any means it's just it's just pretty decent. I mean, it does the thing that you no. Know, the earlier shrek films did in terms of you know being funny first and arch second and no but most of the pleasure of it is in antonio banderas's voice you're right it has been nominated yes my little list here yeah i don't know how much of a chance it's got to win that but
0: uh, we'll see Right, number nine, uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Chip-Erect.
1: Which is terrible. There's been, there's been a couple of news stories floating around about the, the human cast members of that who have given sort of press junkets saying it's the worst thing they've ever done and they've personally ashamed of it. No, I don't think it's necessarily that bad. The problem is that it does the thing that the later Shrek films did of being too concerned with being arch and playing adult jokes. I mean, all the stuff, all the castaway references, I think, will go over the heads of young children who are the target audience. right. Oscar nominations all over the place for our number eight film, The Artist. Yeah, which I really like, and I think this is going to win Best Picture. doesn't mean it's necessarily the best film of the year, because for me that is still, we need to talk about Kevin, but, you know, the best film never wins Best Picture. That's the way the Oscars were. I mean, I think one of the reasons I like it so much is that all, all, I, because I have an interest in the history of cinema, all the old nods to old films like star is born and the jazz singer and so forth i really um sort of soaked up but the thing that really won it over for me was how populist it was you know it's a mainstream film about the abilities of different styles to coexist i don't think it's a masterpiece but it is going to win best picture great number seven mission impossible two mm-hmm. uh, three four five twenty mm-hmm. uh ghost protocol exactly it <laughs> could be any number because they are completely interchangeable and there's actually the odd thing about the mission impossible series is that's very little plot continuity between the installments if my memory serves me correctly and now in IMAX the action sequences are pretty good i think Brad birds a very overrated director and you no know, i think tom cruise is is using the M.I. MI series a little bit too much as a pension plan. So, no, for escapist entertainment, fine, but it's not as good as it should be. Number six, The Sitter. Which is, no, rubbish. I mean, the, uh, the sad thing about it is that Jonah Hill, who stars in The Sitter, has just been nominated for an Oscar for his supporting role in Moneyball. And he does flashback to the time when eddie murphy made dream girls in 2006 i think and no he'd no done this fantastic performance as someone who was a little bit sort of ray charles a bit sammy davis jr everyone thinking wow this is why we loved him in the first place and then as soon as he got Oscar nominated norbit was released and everyone realized how bad he was and it's exactly the same with this i mean the all the jokes are at least 10 years out of date because no, even by the time you got to the second american pie film they were running out of steam and the script is just terrible. And most um, distressing of all, David Gordon Green, who started off as such a great director, he's completely lost the plot. So someone needs to take him aside and say, David, no, I understand you like doing these stoner comedies, but now I want you to do a nice costume drama. Get back right. to realising why you were good in the first place. Just, just realise? No, W.E.? Where's Madonna? Well, I think I commented on that enough last That's- week. I mean, I don't think it... I think that's an example of negative word of mouth killing it. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to take any credit for that, obviously, <laughs> but, you know, there has, there has been... You pre-
0: never know how many people are listening this Well, exactly,
1: morning. but, you know, negative um, r- r- word of mouth can do a lot to kill a film, and I think that has been pretty much universal revulsion for Madonna's film. I don't, despite the fact that it got a Golden Globe for best song, um, less said about which is better. Right, number five the iron lady No, which again has picked up a couple of oscar nominations i think meryl streep has got a good chance of winning best actress although i don't think her performance is as good as a lot of people say because you know i've always maintained that meryl streep's a bit of a showy actress and if you want her best performance go and watch her in sophie's choice for which she won best actress in 82 and that is that's a fantastic performance now It's not the political film about Margaret Thatcher that I wanted, or indeed a lot of people wanted. I understand why they wanted to focus on the personal story rather than the political, but when you've got a figure that strong, you can't get away with that. Number four is Sherlock Holmes' Game of Shadows. Yeah, which uh, I'm really glad that it's done well, because it might... Encourage Guy Ritchie to make more films in which he's not involved in writing level, because it seems to be that when you, when you give him someone else's script and put him behind the camera, he does a good job. No, it's longer and baggier and louder than the first film, but every all the stuff with. Jude Law and Robert Downey Jr. is still great fun. Number three, Underworld Awakening. Which is pretty much what you come to expect from the Underworld series. If you want some people running around in latex with (laughs) some dodgy CGI werewolves, then you'll enjoy it. No, it's totally unmemorable, and you could sort of (laughs) intercut bits from the other three films without noticing. But for trashy, you know, late-night viewing in a drunken stupor after a bad kebab, then okay. Number two, Haywire. I'm not the biggest fan of Steven Soderbergh, like I said last week. I do like Gina Carano in this, and I like the fact that the fight sequences are more realistic, and you do feel like the people are genuinely getting hurt, but I think it's more generic than it wants to admit, and it's sort of... It's being too unnecessarily flashy to compensate for the fact that it is, in the end, a very well-worn B movie. I think Soderbergh is a... is, you no know, direct with a certain amount of fears and pace, but it's not as good as it thinks it is. And number one, phenomenally popular Warhorse. Yeah, I mean it's clearly working for its target audience of sort of teenagers between the I think sort of early teenagers between thirteen and sixteen. Um and it continues to be divisive. I'm I'm still not sure where I stand on that. I think, no, it's it's a sentimental Spielberg work, so therefore that would suggest it's one of his better ones. Um, I don't know how much of a chance it's got of winning Best Picture or indeed a couple of the other nominations. So I think maybe John Williams has got recognition for the score, but maybe true. So, yeah, I will I will have to go and see this and report back on exactly where I stand, but general indications seem to think it's Spielberg on on form rather than trying to be serious right and then, as you said that is also Oscar nominated for best picture should we just have a quick
0: rattle through them the artist mm-hmm. uh War Horse yep. the descendants yeah which we'll talk about in about 20 extremely minutes. loud and incredibly close
1: yeah that that's the one that's not gone down too well because that's a very in terms of its plot it's sort of Oscar bait but we'll come yeah. to that in a few weeks. The Help. Um again divisive I think that there are things about it which are incredibly manipulative but a lot of people love it Hugo which is scorsese returning yeah. to form Midnight in Paris I'm surprised but no Woody Allen is back on form with that you know it's it's not his best film but still Moneyball a very good sports film which isn't about sports and the tree of life flawed Terence Malick work, but anything that Terence Malick does is interesting. I think that's a wildcard choice, though. So, you think the artist... I think the artist is pretty much a shooter. Daniel
0: Mumby's bet.
1: Yes. Right. Well, I'm not a betting mess. <laughs>
0: Interestingly, um, quite a few Northeast nominations. So uh, yeah. just to pick on them very quickly. By all means. First of all, Peter Strawn and his late wife, Bridget O'Connor, uh, shortlisted for Best Screenplay for Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Deservedly. So I think yeah. they might actually have a pretty good chance of winning that category. Yep. Lee Hall, who is uh, one of a team, nominated for Best Screenplay for Warhorse. Mm-hmm. And Janet, uh, try again, Janet McTeer for her role in Albert Knobs.
1: Yeah, and I don't think we'll get albert knobs for a few weeks but it's a yes. it's a cross-dressing drama with glenn Close, and apparently she's, she's uh, very good in it i mean no cross-dressing with glenn close there's the comment always made about glenn close that she's always looked very androgynous so it, you know, it's it's almost certain that she can do justice to that role so everybody at northern film and media will be
0: very proud of all those northeast nominations yeah
1: and of course Tinker taylor's also got a lot of bafta nominations so we shall yes. have to keep our eye on that as well yeah,
0: and is jamie well, bell in any of them i haven't really
1: been watching yeah i'm surprised yes. that tintin's got neglected for best animated Film to right. be honest, but uh, that's that's beside the point.
0: I'll film after this. My, My from Annick. This
1: is Lionheart
0: Radio. Yes, indeed, it is. I was at uh, Annick Playhouse on Thursday night to watch the pantomime, which was really, really good this year. No, it uh, wasn't. Oh awesome. <laughs> yeah, he right. walked straight into that one. I'm yes, s- indeed. I'm yes. sure it was Treasure Island, fantastic uh, production, and uh, well, lots of memorable things. But certainly one of them was the outrageously camp Andrew Kane. Unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable. Puts pirates in a whole new, uh, whole new um, place. Whole new camp. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> and uh, talking about outrageously camp, this week's cult film. The Adventures
1: of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which yes. we'll just refer to as Priscilla from here on in, because yeah. it's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, 1994 uh, Australian comedy-drama road movie written and directed by Stephen Elliott. Um, his name's not very widely known, because in the same way as a lot of the directors we've covered on here, like um, uh, John Mackenzie, who made The Longer Friday, or Frank Rodham, who made Quadrophenia, they peaked very early and then did nothing of significance or commercial note afterwards. He had made one film prior to this called... Uh, Frauds, which was a, a little caper comedy starring Phil Collins, but that wasn't very widely seen. Um, this was part of a wave of Australian films which reached uh, an international audience in the early 1990s. The other big ones being Muriel's Wedding, which is, a com- which is, I suppose you could argue, the forerunner of Bridesmaids in that sort of Judd apatow yeah. comedy. It's much more sort of rough around the edges than Bridesmaids. And Baz Luhrmann's debut film, Strictly Ballroom, which I think is partly in Spanish if I remember correctly, which is about sort of the conventions yeah. of Flamenco and so forth. Uh, filmed on a budget of 2.7 Australia, million Australian dollars, almost said 2.7 dollars, but it's not that cheap. Um, most of the crew worked for low salaries rather than, and in, in exchange for a share of the film's profits yeah. because the budget was so low. It's that like famous story about the third man, when Orson Welles made the third man he was asked by carol reed the director whether he wanted to take an upfront fee and forget about it or whether he wanted a, a share of the the gross profits and wells famously took the fee thinking the film wasn't going to be any good and it turned out to be <laughs> the biggest hit yeah. he'd ever been in so you know, even awesome wells was capable of a bad decision once in a while um an interesting quirk about it it was made with the backing of the australian film finance corporation and one of their conditions of giving money was that only one non-australian actor could appear in it which is you know, it's fair enough i mean it's like the old it's like the rule you have in county cricket where you're allowed one yeah. overseas player because you're trying to encourage native talent so before terence stamp got the part of ralph bernadette we'll come on to it in a second the part was offered to amongst others david bowie and john hertz but neither of them uh, sadly were available it took about 18 million australian dollars in its home box office but only got a small amount of attention uh, elsewhere to start with it, it was one of those films that the momentum slowly built, and it did eventually win an Oscar for Best Costumes, um, and it has since gone on to become a camp classic, much admired within the gay community. Um, i just found a couple of statistics. It was ranked number seven on Logo's 50 Greatest Films with an LGBT theme, LGBT for people who aren't aware it, it's lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender, and also ranked at number 10 on After Elton's 50 Greatest Gay Movies. Um, it's also uh, inspired... Uh, a. A spin-off stage musical starring jason donovan who actually has um intrinsic links to the film in terms of yeah. how it was produced and it's become so embraced by australian culture that it actually featured in the closing ceremony of the sydney olympics there was a, a little section where, well, they, do the, yeah, where yeah. they do the parade of yeah. australian cultural icons and there were people turning up in massive heels and huge wigs So the plot is, it revolves around three drag queens, um, and this is where the interesting stories about casting come in. Um, one of them is called Tick, who is played by Hugo Weaving, and that role was originally offered to Rupert Everett, but he had to turn it down because he was swanning around playing the Prince Regent in The Man of King George around the same time, and he's one of the best things about that film, Rupert Everett as his sort of grumpy, churlish best. a younger uh, drag queen called adam played by guy pierce who was originally going to be played by jason donovan and that's how he got yeah. involved in the stage musical and bernadette who is a transsexual real name called ralph and he's played by terence stamp the role apart from uh, david bowie and john hurt was offered first to tony curtis who i think would have done a very good job with it wouldn't he yes. yeah and then it was given to john cleese who basically said no i'm not interested yeah, i'm not uh, sure he'd have pulled it no yeah. i mean i don't think john cleese was grumpy enough at that yeah. stage i mean he's very grumpy now but at that stage he wasn't quite there so there are three drag queens um one of whom like i say is a transsexual they work the club circuits of sydney under the show names respectively of mitzi del bra felicia <laughs> felicia jolly goodfellow and Bernadette uh, Basenjoe, or Bassenjoe, no, because obviously yeah. it's after Kim. And uh, their routine essentially consists of them dressing up in outrageous costumes, which are sort of colourful to the point of being fluorescent and miming to ABBA songs, or there's you no know, bits of Diana Ross in there as well. Uh, Tick gets a call from a casino in Alice Springs, which is obviously in the other end of Australia, in the middle of nowhere, and uh, they say, can you come up and perform your drag act for a four-week stint? And he says, great. He buys a massive bus, which he can, which he christens Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and and he takes adam and bernadette along for the ride thinking well you know we can make some money out of it bernadette is grieving after the yeah. loss of her husband whom she uh, there's a funeral yeah. happens at the beginning of the film and on the way they encounter various groups of homophobic locals aborigine communities um drunken filipinos which we'll come on to later bernadette ends up falling in love and tick reveals a secret about his life outside of the drag circuit yeah it's an interesting film for a number of reasons the first thing about it is that it highlights something about the nature of cinema i mean if you look at the history of cinema from sort of the 1890s onwards, which, which is you no know, pertinent to talk about considering that hugo and the artist and yeah. super 8 more recently there you know, films that come out about the history of cinema the history of cinema is like a two-headed beast which is running in opposite directions because on the one hand you've got the trashy end which looks back to the fact that cinema was originally a novelty you know the nickelodeon with the what the butler yeah. sort of thing where you turn the crank or of course you no know, uh when photography was first invented one of the first photos ever taken was a topless barmaid yeah. so there is that trashy origin and that end of cinema says yeah you know no make no bones about it and on the other hand you've got the other head which says in a mixture of maturity and self-denial no this is an art form this is uplifting this is inspiring this is enriching and so forth and nowhere is this quarrel more vividly expressed than in australian cinema and you know if you look at particularly Australian cinema from the late 70s onwards, there's a cross-section of pretty much everything that had gone before in film. So yep. you have the rough-and-ready exploitation of Mad Max, you've got the fabulous fantasy of Basil Ehrman's Red Curtain trilogy, Strictly Ballroom, Romeo and Juliet, and Moulin Rouge, of which Moulin Rouge is the best, and uh, the mega-blockbuster, which is Crocodile Dundee, and then you end up, of course, with the cult classic in Priscilla. Of the 90s wave, which I described as, I like I said, Mural's Wedding and Strictly Ballroom, this is one of the brasher efforts, and it's those films retained sort of the rough edged charm of crocodile dundee but actually said now that we've got your attention with some stereotypes let's actually set the record straight about what australians are really like and although it's not without its problems it's still an important and highly entertaining film both as an entry in the aussie film canon and as a cult classic in its own right for those uninitiated in gay culture or the drag scene and i have to say i don't have massive amounts of knowledge about it um it would be tempting to reduce Priscilla down to the novelty of seeing three great thefts prancing around in women's clothing. I mean, neither Guy Pearce nor Hugo were even the big stars at this point, but it does raise an eyebrow when you sort of look back at it now and thinking, that's Edward VIII and that's Agent Smith <laughs> prancing around in, you No, know, how, how did you get that much mascara on yeah. your face? And then, of course, you've got Terrence Stamp, whom we think of as this sort of straight-laced hard man. Of course, his brother is Chris Stamp who managed The Who, so he yeah. had to be quite hard for that. But, of course, he dabbled in camp to a certain extent with his performance as General Zod in Superman <laughs> yes. 1 and famously Superman 2, which he does spend the entire film flying around with a with a bin bag on for a costume, but he is the best thing in Superman 2. There was a great quote from the film's producer, Al Clark, about the effect of seeing the three actors in makeup for the first time. I'll just read it out in full. It is striking what an effect the disguise of drag is having on the actors' personalities. It makes Guy Pearce flirtatious, combative and loud... It makes Terence Stamp withdrawn and watchful. Hello, sailor. He greets me wearily with his back to the wall, looking like a fallen woman in a 50s melodrama. And it makes Hugo Weaving extraordinarily trashy. (laughs) Which I think sums it up quite well. And there are a great many films which would be amply sustained by just the novelty of three great actors dressing up in women's clothing, playing against type and getting away with saying some quite (laughs) outrageous things. But to the credit of Priscilla, it doesn't play this novelty for any more than it's worth. And it gradually wears off as you start to actually bond with the people underneath the costume. So on, you know, after a while, you th- for the first five or ten minutes, you, start, you are thinking, how could you get a blue that garish? How could you yep. get that much lipstick on his face? Is it a man? Is it a woman? Where's the <laughs> Adam's apple? But then eventually you think, actually, the thing I'm really interested in is the characters and the, you know, the men yep. struggling underneath it who just happen to wear women's clothing. Priscilla has, like I say, in the in the build-up, been recognised for its role in the promotion of gay rights and the LGBT uh, uh, agenda. It brings ideas about gay behaviour, gay culture, and gay identity to a mainstream audience without sort of ramming uh, messages of respect and tolerance down the audience's throat in the way that something like. Well, I suppose Jonathan Demme's Philadelphia is a little guilty of that, but that's not too bad. But the message of the film is quite simple and significant: you know, that being gay, transsexual, or a drag queen, it's not just acceptable, but it's it's perfectly normal, or at least should be seen as a perfectly straightforward life choice. And there's all sorts of scenes about, you know, um, Adam's father not wanting him to go into the profession, or you know the relationships with the other members of the family, or the reaction of their close friends and you know, how how far people accept it. I mean. It, The significance of the film, for me, lies in its very conscious departure from the clichéd depiction of homosexuals. I mean, if you look back to something like the 60s and 70s, particularly in British cinema, homosexuals are either sort of shallow, wet blankets with hinged wrists who sort of run around in high-pitched voices, or they're sort of repressed public schoolboys who sort of sit in the corner with slightly too tight shoulders and can't talk about such things. It's very, it's very much a cliche to characterize Australians as more easygoing, but in this case, that sort of laid-back attitude works to the advantage, because it's just to say, no, what's the big deal? These are just three ordinary people who just happen to make a living yeah. by dressing up in women's clothing and miming ABBA songs." And in American hands, certainly, this would have been much more showy and less believable, and all those things would have been clumsily conveyed. And if you want proof of that, look at the American rip-off of this, which has got an even less... A title which trips off the tongue even less. To Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Yeah, right. Yeah, and of course, Julie Newmar is uh, famous for playing. Go back to your sort of formative years. Uh, can't remember. Catwoman in the Batman TV series. Oh, right. Yes, yes. and she became a gay icon yes. all of her yeah. own. Um... Although Priscilla's character execution contains very little that is American, for the reasons I've just described, it does owe a great tradition to the, you know, the American road movies, particularly the late 60s. So the big reference point that comes up is Easy Rider, because it's a film with a very independent spirit, very low budget, and, you know, it's about the characters' relationships with each other within the backdrop of this desolate wasteland-like landscape, because of course in Easy Rider it's Peter Fonda and Jack Nicholson and so forth going around on these massive bikes, having a great time. And there are also, sort of, a number of references to musical, including, and this is one of the reasons why I like the film in a certain way, it's, there's a big section where they basically tear into Xanadu and rip out, you no, take the, <laughs> take the piss out of Olivia Newton-John. Because you that. love that so yeah, much. Yes, but no, <laughs> it's... It's not... That's not the only reason I like the film, but that's sort of (laughs) a a nice little glacé cherry on the cake. Um, It's got an absolutely corking script. Most of the best lines do go to Terence Stamp, and he's speaking in his natural British accent, which is never entirely explained. You know, everyone else is sort of speaking in broad stride, but he brings... He brings sort of flair and erudition to an otherwise broad and brash environment. One of his best scenes comes. Now, I'll I'll sort of tread carefully, because it's a 15-certificate film, so I don't know whether or not we can say this, but I'll I'll go ahead. Um, They go to a bar in a sort of uh, out-and-out town. I think it's called Cuba House or something like that. And uh, they go in in full drag... Go to the bar and order something. Say, "Can I have a bloody memory, a lime daiquiri, and so forth." And this burly woman sort of walks in and starts verbally abusing them, saying, "You know, we've got nothing for you here." And puts her hand on Terence Stamp's hand and starts squeezing his hand. And he takes her hand off, and just looks at her very calmly and goes, "Now listen here, you mullet." Why don't you just light your tampon and blow your box apart? Because it's <laughs> the only bang you're ever going to get, sweetheart. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, right. Cue rampant laughter. I yes. know. I think that's just about okay yeah. for the morning. And like I say, we did warn you. There's also more uncomfortable moments when there's sort of darker humour. And again, if if you've got young children listening, that by all means f- feel free to fade down for twenty seconds. But no, this is one of the mm. the reasons that the film is so appealing in a way. Um, There is a flashback sequence where. um Tick asks Adam, you know, what sort of tormented charter did you have? And there is a sequence of Adam, at about the age of six, going into the bathroom, and it's his slightly pervy uncle in the bath, and he says, you know, would you like to play a game? What I want you to do is put your hand under the water and Mm. pull gently, so you don't have to use your imagination. But then the film completely sort of pulls the rope from under us, because, you know, he puts his hand under the water, pulls the plug out of the bath, and his uncle starts writhing in agony, because his, well, in his words, his ping-pongs are caught in the drain, and the young Adam just sits there saying, I'm not going to get mother, I'm just going to watch you, and then it cuts back to the adult sort of squirting in laughter, and his dad I mean, it's difficult to talk about this sort of thing in a way which doesn't make us feel uncomfortable. Yeah. But when you actually see it on screen, it is very funny. As Roger Ebert observed in his review, Priscilla is actually, although it's, you know, gained a lot of recognition from the drag community, it's not actually really a film about drag queens. It's actually about three middle-aged men who have all got to a point where they're sick and tired of doing what they're doing and feeling that they've been treated in a certain way long enough to basically think about leaving it all behind. I mean... When they're traveling through to Alice Springs on the bus and having all these arguments, particularly with sort of Tick and Bernadette laying into Adam for being sort of, you know, prancing around yeah. and being loud and obnoxious, it's not because they hate him. It's because they actually think, if you carry on like this, there's a good chance you could turn into us and we don't want you becoming bitter and horrible and twisted because, you know, we've we've been there and we know what it's like in the manner of things it's actually quite an old-fashioned romance because all three characters do end up sort of falling into the arms of men and men end up being their salvation i'm not it's not retrograde it's just a very old-fashioned way of doing it so Tick and Adam end up bonding with um, with Tick's young son because what happens is that they get to Alice Springs and he finds out that he's got a six year old kid and he wonders, oh, how's he going to feel that he, about no her father who's yeah. a drag queen and his son turns out to be completely fine with it, saying, you know, no, there's nothing unto am I've seen it all before. It's fine. And they end up sort of hanging out together. And uh, Bernadette finds this character called uh, Bob who they sort of meet in an outback town after he's fixed their bus. And she finds out that he's he's probably the only man he's ever met. She's <laughs> or she's ever met. It's difficult to yeah. see where they, the lines draw. Whom they, she genuinely can depend on him, and it's not a sort of physical lust yeah. or a fetish. It's actually just people who genuinely compare about each other. And at the end of the film, they end up staying in Alice Springs while the other two go back yeah. home. There are a couple of problems with Priscilla. I mean, notwithstanding the uncomfortable tone of certain scenes, which I think we conveyed quite there. I mean, like I say, it's an Australian film, so you will get some rough edges in any case. Because it does conform to road movie conventions, there are long sections which feel slow and do become repetitive. I mean, once the characters get stranded in the outback and have to sort of go to Aborigines to fix their bus. It does sort of get bogged down. There's one too many scenes where they resort to, oh, let's cut to them rehearsing a dance number, or let's cut to them climbing a massive canyon in drag. (laughs) Which, you know, you think, yeah, it's fun, and it sort of ties up all the plot points, but it's not really going anywhere. More problematic is the seemingly racist depiction of Filipinos, because Bob, when they first meet um, Bob, whom Bernadette later falls in love with, he's married to a former Filipino um, core girl, to put it sensitively, who... um, No, speaks in broken english swears rampantly and seems addicted to both alcohol and sex which is is very much a stereotypical depiction of filipino women and one of the most memorable scenes for all the wrong reasons is her turning out of the bar and doing the (sighs) doing a trick involving ping-pong balls which i can't really describe in a sensitive way but uh, if you've seen the people can use their imagination if you've seen one of the endings of i think it's in series two of Peter pdk's phoenix nights where they have the magician girl it's essentially the original version of that and the filmmaker's response to the depiction of that character has not been entirely satisfying again there's a quote from al clark who said no i fully admit it was a stereotype but it wasn't our intention to avoid the portrayal of vulnerable characters and it's actually it says as much about filipino women as it does as being in drag says about australian men and i can see where he's coming from but i'm not entirely sure that that's a satisfying explanation she's only in the film for about five minutes but you do think, you know, you're th- it threatens to sour the whole experience and just move on or take yeah. her out and so forth. Any editor worth their salt would have taken it out. But the above flaws notwithstanding, you know, the rough edges, the you know, the Filipino character and so forth, it is a sterling piece of entertainment and an important chapter in Aussie cinema. I think that Elliot directs... Pretty competently, and the performances are generally excellent, particularly Terence Stamp, who has, you no know, he's on really fine form here, and yeah. he was incredibly reluctant to take the role, but it is in many ways one of his finest performances. Um, whatever the merits of the musical at Spawn, which I haven't seen, but I gather is quite good, certainly in its original run, it got very good reviews, um, there is no substitute for the original, whether as a count classic, an off-the-wall road movie, or a rough-edged, warm-hearted drama. Right, excellent. We're going to go back very briefly to the Anic Panto.
0: I'll have to show you the picture of this because there's Jimmy Dodds and a couple of his mates dressed up as the Three Degrees. Or oh, just have, to have a bit of Three Degrees, really.
1: Lying hard Radio
0: degrees there and when will i see you again and it was say uh, it was really good to see uh hit done at the uh panto and best Annick panto i've seen since i've moved up here and i think a lot of people agree with me on that last night tonight so good luck to them yeah. break a leg or whatever you say yeah i might be able to go along i'll, I'll see whether i'm free this evening <laughs> <laughs> you'll be lucky to get a ticket i think well so. I, I i shall hang around <laughs> and be nice <laughs> if it's possible yes but uh, but very good anyway uh, right let's start our look at this week's new
1: releases um, uh, just before we do Oh yes,
0: next week's cult film, yes.
1: Michael Lehman's Heather's think Doctor Strangelove only darker and funnier. Oh right, okay. (laughs) House of Pleasure, shall we start with? Yeah, okay. Um, New film by Bertrand Bonello, as a French filmmaker who came to notoriety a little bit in the late '90s with a film called The Pornographer, which I think got it got a certain amount of attention because the BBC cut about 10 seconds of it when it sort of tipped over into well not hard well hardcore pornographic territory it's set in a brothel at the end of the 19th century in france and it follows various intertwining stories of the various frequenters of said brothel and the courtesans who sort of walk around in corsets and impossible amounts of makeup another priscilla yeah. reference uh, and you know there's you no know, men wandering around with panthers. basically there's no real story but it's a film which sort of it's, it's one of those films which, its attitude towards sex is, I want both art and I want sleaze, because I want to be as explicit as I can in terms of showing the act of sex going on. Yeah. But I also want to have this detachment saying, oh, it's not just about the sex, it's about yeah. sort of life and love and so forth. The big thing about it is this. When Stanley Kubrick made Eyes Wide Shut, which a lot of people really, really hate, and I'm still on the fence about, I need to see it again... He very much had a point to prove, because he, he was making a film about jealousy, which, and in which he wanted to show that actual, you know, having affairs and, yeah. you know, the act of, you no know, philandering, and there's no glamour in it whatsoever, and that's, no, know, it's, it's yeah. in many ways morally his most conservative film, because it's a yeah. film that nakedly celebrates monogamy, and you know, the the mansion scene, which is not titillating in the slightest, you actually think, well... As much as I'm annoyed by the fact that you're doing sleaze in a sort of arty, slightly pretentious yeah. way, at least you've got a point to prove. But then you go slightly forward further to Sleeping Beauty, which came out late last year, where it's Emily Browning yeah. being drugged, and then supposedly, yeah. well, is she consenting or isn't she to the various yeah. men who frequent that establishment? And you'll notice I'm tiptoeing around because yeah. I'm aware that a lot of people yeah. who are now under the age of consent might be listening. And the problem with this is that it, it it has that thing of, on the one hand, it wants to be sleazy, on the other hand, it wants to be arty, and in the end, it ends up as just a bunch of pretentious waffle. And the the real tipping point of it is when, towards the end of the film, and one of the characters says, oh, you know, something along the lines of, oh, you know, this uh, these uh, prostitutes, they are not what they used to be, you know, and not in a pretentious franchise. But I just think, you know, if make art arty and sleaze sleazy, and let's just Stanley Kubrick, and because he's not alive anymore, we can't do that anymore, so just stop it frankly
0: okay our next one uh, interesting cast list simon callow celia
1: Imrie, and harry enfield yes Axe of godfrey yeah he doesn't turn up in many feature films harry enfield which is a shame because he's actually quite a good screen presence i think he uh, do you remember a film called churchill the hollywood years no. Um came out about 8 years ago I think and it was in, in you remember things like U571 where the Amer- Americans typi- um, typically rewrote history in their favor so yeah. they were the ones who found yeah. the Enigma decoding yes. machine. Yeah. Well Churchill the Hollywood years was like doing british history of world war ii from a sort of tongue-in-cheek american point of view but with a british cast so you had yeah. christian slater as churchill uh, rick and aid edmund rick and aid as sort of madcap soldiers vic and bob as no uh, 19th century butlers yeah and it, it was you no know, it was slightly ropey and all over the place but it was good fun and harry Enford i think had a cameo performance in that this is a low budget low-budget British film, um, the debut effort from Johnny Dorks or Dalks, I don't know how you pronounce it. It's gotten a fair amount of attention because it is, or at least claims to be, the first film written and performed entirely in rhyming couplets. And you have, like I say, an all-star cast, Celia Emery, Simon Callow, Harry Enfield, in which, you know, they're, they're a bunch of people going to a, a two-day sales convention in one of these sort of big conference centres. Yeah. And uh, all manner of sort of plot shenanigans you had to do with infidelity and greed and uh, possible hints of murder and so forth. It's one of those films where you think, for the first five minutes, that's actually quite a quite nice idea of taking a fairly modern premise and doing it in a, in a Chaucerian manner, using rhyming couplets to expose yeah. the generic yeah. conventions. But... Five minutes in, the joke wears thin. Ten minutes in, you're thinking this would actually have been served much better as a three-minute Harry Enfield sketch, and I think he would have written it better. (laughs) It's not a terrible film. It's quite short. I think it's only about 82 minutes, but it does run out of steam quite quickly, and, no, I think Simon Callow is doing a little bit too ripe a performance to to sort of carry the suspension of disbelief. One of the reviews of it. Less T.S. Eliot, more carry on. Yes, I mean, um... I think that's being a little too harsh. I think it just runs out of steam a bit too quickly. <laughs> that was the only one
0: in favour of it as well. Was... They get worse after that, <laughs> I tell you. Right,
1: next one is A Monster in Paris. Um, new film by uh, Vibo Bergeron, who is uh, the director of Shot... Who- directed Shark Tale, which was that sort of rip-off of Finding Nemo w- with Robert yeah. De Niro and Will Smith, uh, featuring the immortal line from Angelina Jolie, the only thing I love more than money is revenge. Uh, and, of course, featured Robert De Niro and Martin yeah. Scorsese in a rare voice appearance. And that, the problem with Shark Tale was it sort of took all the, the family charm of Finding Nemo and did a sort of Shrek version yeah. of it of adults and won't get, adults will get the jokes of kids down. Featuring the voice, amongst others, of Vanessa Parody, who is probably more famous these days for being married to Johnny Depp, but he's actually yeah. a, a very good singer-songwriter, and. Right, set in Paris in nineteen ten, you have a scientist called Raoul, who is a scientist who specialise who works by night and specializes in you no know, insects and the study of insects. He falls in love with a cinema projectionist played by Parody. Um their romance in causes them to accidentally let loose a massive flea that he has created from sort of genetic experiments. The flea starts sort of roaming around Paris and creating havoc and they have to go and sort of you know get it back. Um it's one of those films where you no know, if you look at the length of the plot on Rotten Tomatoes, it kind of shows how difficult it is to sum up, because yeah. the plot is, well, either very complicated or all over the place, depending on it. But it's quite visually stylish. It certainly hangs together a lot better than Shark Tale. It's more fun yeah. than Shark Tale. I think the voice cast equate themselves perfectly well. I mean, you can all, There have been a couple of people, not necessarily the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, but I've read about who've sort of compared it to the work of Franz Kafka, seemingly because, only because there's that bit in Metamorphosis where the character turns into a massive cockroach at the yeah. end. So I think there's a very, very tenuous link with Kafka there. But, no, I don't think it's a great piece of work, but uh, it's good, solid fun. I think that if you're under the age of 10 or 11, you'll really enjoy it, and it is a lot better than Shark Tale. So thumbs up. Next one, Liam Neeson at The Grey... A new film by Joe Carnahan, who has you know, done things like NARC, Smoking Aces. Most famously, he did the, the film adaptation of The A-Team, uh, featuring Bradley Cooper. And uh, there was a bit of a backlash about The A-Team, because Mr. T was offered a cameo p- appearance in that, and basically said, no, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to be your fool, or that sort of <laughs> thing. As only Mr. T could say. Um, in this case, you have a group of oil rig workers, led by uh, Liam Neeson, who is featured very heavily in the publicity, um, because Liam Neeson's in the point in, is experiencing a second career as a sort of B-movie hard man. Yeah. So he's an oil rig worker. He's travelling by plane with a few of his colleagues. I think he's in Alaska. He gets stranded in the wilderness after the plane crashes, and they have to survive against, you know, being trapped in the middle of nowhere and freezing to death. But killer wolves are on their track. Um, If you've seen the posters for this, it has very much featured... It's been Liam Neeson's face with sort of the first signs of frostbite on it, and it's being sold as a Liam Neeson vehicle. Yeah. I actually think it's Joe Carnahan's best film. I mean, in the past, he has been... Sort of Brett Ratner, but slightly more talented in the sense of taking something which is sort of schlocky or B-movie and not much to it, doing it in a way which is quite violent, quite flashily yeah. directed. In no, many ways he's, he could be described as the American Luke Besson. Yeah. In, and, but like Luke Besson, he has one good film in him, and this actually turns out to be it. I mean, it's, you take a fairly simple, well-worn premise of man against killer whatever it be, whether it's yeah. killer wildebeest like in Razorback, or killer bees like in My Girl, or The Swarm, the Owen Allen film, or Killer Birds in the Hitchcock film, which you're still scared of, if I (gasps) remember correctly. Yes. ah! <laughs> so, but you take that sort of premise and you, you play it out over 90 minutes in a way which, you know, basically explores it from every angle. There's little yeah. sort of philosophical touchstones uh, along the way, but in the end, it is that straightforward premise and, no, as Route 1 filmmaking, it does its job pretty well and I think if you want a Liam Neeson vehicle, it's going to hold up a lot better than some of his recent efforts like Taken or Unknown. So that sounds good. Um, going on the subject of the birds, have you seen the Mel Brooks parody of Hitchcock called High Anxiety? No. Because there's a section in that where they recreate. Um, the swarming sequence of the birds, but rather than sort of swarming and attacking Mel Brooks, who's playing no, the wrong man as he yeah. is in Hitchcockville, they have the birds defecating on him. And the way they achieved that effect was getting the film crew to stand slightly off camera with jars of sort of spinach and mayonnaise, you just, go just throwing <laughs> these spoonfuls of spinach at Mel Brooks because they couldn't train hundreds of birds to defecate in unison. Yes. right finally the descendants <laughs> which is the film of the week um, George Clooney exactly new yeah. film by Alexander Payne who is a great American filmmaker he started off with uh, a film called election which uh, featured uh, Reese Witherspoon and uh, Matthew Broderick still one of Reese Witherspoon's best performances uh, he made about Schmidt for which Jack Nicholson was Oscar nominated and I think no about Schmidt's a really great film and yeah. perhaps the last great film Jack Nicholson's made to date yeah most recently he made sideways with Paul Giamatti and this is his first feature in seven or eight years Years, depending on whether you're going as a 2011 yeah. or 2012 release so the story is George Clooney is a man uh, living in Hawaii he's on the cusp of uh, late middle age he's he's the character no, Alexander Payne has the archetype in his films of what's known as the beached male the late middle-aged man who is staring into the oblivion after a life-changing event in this case he's a property developer living in Hawaii who has been neglecting his two teenage daughters his life is thrown off course when his beloved wife is thrown from a boat and ends up in a coma yeah and there's some you no know, uncertainty about whether or not she's going to come out and so he's forced to bond with his daughters whom he's you no know, well, not neglected, but just not been the proper father to for yeah. all those years. And meanwhile, there's a, a property deal involving Hawaii going on in the background. And, uh, no, it's, it's very much a film that portrays a, a less touristy version of Hawaii. I think one of the opening, uh, lines of it is saying, just because I live in Hawaii, don't, don't, uh, expect that I don't have problems. <laughs> um, it is gentler than some of Payne's other work. I mean, if you listen to, About Schmidt is, it's very much in the sort of the scabrous tradition, when About Schmidt is now a guy who's just retired from his job in insurance, and then his wife, uh, dies on him and he sort of gets through the days by writing a sort of pen pal correspondence to a child in africa and jack nicholson now whenever you hear the words dear hinduku my wife died today I Haven't recognized her for the last 12 years. I'm very glad she's gone. That sort of thing. so yeah. it, it is so edgy But this is a lot more gentle and in many ways It's a lot more unremarkable in the sense that it's you no know, people going on an emotional journey mm. But alexander payne does have a knack for writing very well-formed middle-aged characters and From all the moments in it where you do feel Like you've seen it before or that it's a little too light-hearted and gentle for its own good the film eventually wins you over because you feel like the people are actually real. and yeah. no, Despite the fact that he's a property developer in Hawaii who presumably has quite a bit of money, and despite the fact that, no, it's a schlubby middle-aged man <laughs> who's played by George Clooney, was only yeah. just turned 50, I think, and still looks incredibly gorgeous. you do actually believe in his character so i don't think it's alexander payne's finest work i mean sideways and about schmidt takes some beating but it's definitely the film of the week i think george clooney's got a very good chance of winning an oscar for best actor no it's Ah. it's it's been coming i think and no it's it seems like it's his year although i want gary oldman to win of course i think he's terrific so it's definitely the one to see it's it's actually quite a good family film i think it's a 15 certificate but it's like i said because it's gentler um no you fi- you will find if you've got so sort of younger viewers they will go along with it sounds good It so, is. <laughs> it's quite a few uh, good films out this week then yeah so the descendants is the film of the week if you're you no know, for the sort of the artier end of it if you're just wanting something a little trashier and more b-movie then the gray will suit you perfectly well and if you've got young children a monster in Paris will pass the time quite nicely. and any recommendations from the top ten um well i'm going to see warhorse either next week or the week after so i'll get back to you on that um i'm presuming most people have seen sherlock holmes already so the artist and uh i suppose haywire but only if you have an interest in sort of the spy thriller b movie because i'm not its biggest fan but those three will do very nicely. and of course lots of
0: good films on at tower local cinemas absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. the next few days so uh nice to see you yes. and you'll be back next th- Thursday. I'll be back Thursday 1 till 3. Uh, which and we're here next Saturday morning. 10 to 11 to do next. Heathers. That should be good. Right, have a good week everybody. Some news after Adele.